Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Greetings fellow time travelers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me as we journey together through space and time. Before starting on today's episode, as always, i like to say a big thanks to all the people who support this podcast, uh, the whole series in fact, by subscribing to my patreon.com site. Uh, it's your financial help there that makes everything else possible and keeps everything else free, so thank you for that. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to join the family, the, the great free-thinking, open-minded community uh, that is my patreon.com site, go to Patreon, look for me by name, Follow the instructions, part with some cash, monthly or annually. It's cheaper by the year, cheaper by the dozen. Uh, and join us, become part of the family, get access to vodcasts and podcasts and question and answer sessions and the occasional competition uh, and all the rest of the things that occasionally cross uh, Paul and my mind as the weeks go past. Okay, enough of the adverts, time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A rich land, soil deep and fertile with plentiful game, gold, copper and ivory to export. A mighty city built from local granite with confidence and great skill. Trading links stretching around the world, pottery from China and Persia, silver from Arabia, described by western explorers as a lost city, built on a beautiful plateau, a sophisticated ancient empire and a stolen history. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we travelled to Russia as it held an X-Factor competition to choose its new religion. Which moment in history are we heading to this week? Yeah, morning Paul. Um, We're crossing continents this week, uh, leaving behind Russia and travelling down through the continent of Africa to the south to a beautiful landscape that captivates all who arrive there. We're here to see the construction of a vast city and a powerful empire whose legacy and history were bulldozed by invaders. We're standing in the shadow of the mighty stone walls of Great Zimbabwe. We're in Africa. where we haven't really been very much at all, apart from when you consider Africa uh, in terms of Egypt. And we've obviously spent some time with Egyptian figures from history and ancient Egypt's contribution to the foundations of the ancient world. But we're back there again today uh, in relation to a site that uh, time travellers will know as Great Zimbabwe. Um, And we'll get to Great Zimbabwe 
in, in due course, but some background. First of all, we're on the what geographers and map makers would describe as the central plateau in Africa, southern Africa. It's a vast terrain. And to do the background to this love letter to the world, we have to do it backwards. We have to sort of go in from the nearer to the present day. Uh, around 1830, an African people, a, a clan, a tribe, whatever demarcation you want to use, called the Ama Endebele, were on the move, and they were they were amongst a, a whole family of languages, the, which is the Bantu family of languages. And there are all sorts of peoples spread all across parts of Africa who speak variations of dialects that are related to and spring from, like branches, from the great trunk of the Bantu language. So the Ama Indabeli, by around 1830, they had been on the move because to some extent these, these peoples were migrating, pushing further and further south from kind of ancestral homelands, you know, over over a long period of time, down through the generations. And this group, Ama Indabeli, had established themselves on the central plateau of southern Africa. So, in many ways, culturally, uh, and in their approach to life and the universe and everything that surrounds it, the Ama Indabeli were quite like the Amazulu, the Zulus, which people will know from the movies. If you're my age, you've almost certainly watched Zulu, the movie about the, the defence of Rourke's Drift by some British soldiers. Anyway, the Ama Indabeli were like the Zulu, in that they were a fledgling nation. They were, they were coming together, they were coalescing, crystallising into something solid. As a as a as an as a as a people who understood themselves as being part of something bigger than just the family, just the clan, they were they had a, a sense of national identity. It was coming. It was a bit amorphous, a bit cloud-like, but it was coming. Amongst other things, they were very proud of their warrior prowess. They were an aggressive, bellicose, colonising people. They were they were moving into new territory and and taking it for themselves. And they were also very loyal to their king, which was very much a, a defining characteristic of the Zulu nation. Not exclusively, but the Zulu were very much focused around their king. Are they connected to Zulus? Well, the, the Zulus are part... They, they're, the Zulu language is part of the Bantu family of languages as well. So there were cultural overlaps. They would have been able to understand one another in the, in the same way, I suppose, that you would say that the Welsh language is a Brythonic the Proto-Indo-European language, and so is Gaelic, Scots Gaelic. And while the two peoples wouldn't necessarily have been able to speak to one another fluently right away, they would have heard similarities and words and sentence structure and whatever. You know, so the so the Zulu would have would have seen things in common in the Indabeli and vice versa. Amazulu means the place where heaven is, which is quite lovely, and it is beautiful and fertile and aesthetically pleasing and the Amazulu they called themselves that they called their, their territory the place where heaven is and Zulu means the people of heaven almost angels if you like the people who inhabit heaven um, so the, the place on the on the central plateau or the central plateau that the Endebeli found and, and was to their liking was another heaven fantastically well drained rich fertile soil ready to take any crop you wanted to plant in it as the Europeans would, would also find out subsequently Plentiful game, so there was lots of protein running around on four legs. 
and in the rivers there was gold and also copper. And if it was in the rivers, that meant there were seams of it in the rock. So it was a potentially rich and fruitful place, and the Endebelli knew it. Now, they didn't arrive in a greenfield site. There were already people there, uh, and they were people that the Endebelli came to call the Mashona. And not least because those people were like the sitting tenants in a very desirable property that they wanted to take and develop for their own, they persuaded themselves that it was right to despise the Mashona. Now, it's unlikely that the Mashona were, by definition, a despicable people. It was just that the Indibeli coming in found them to be an obstacle, and so they persuaded themselves that they were lesser, other, and that they could be picked on. And, I mean, indeed they were... They had a simpler social structure, they were further away from concepts of nationhood than the Indibeli, and the Indibeli decided the Mashona really had no place in heaven, that they, it, they weren't worthy of it, and so they mistreated them from the get-go and hunted them down, you subjugated them in every conceivable way. And so these are the early years of the 19th century, and the Mashona, by that point, and under pressure from the Indibeli, it, it, it occurred to no one least of all the Indabelli, that these people, the Mashona, might ever have been connected to anything special, far less anything great. But the facts were they were completely overlooking the ancient heritage of the Mashona. So that's a, there's a, there's a, you know, so we're in the, we start in the 19th century, the Indabelli come into that territory and they subjugate and, and oppress the Mashona that it's the Mashona that were actually interested in this love letter to the world. So let's go back in time, let's travel in time to around the year 200 AD, the first centuries of the first millennium AD, there or thereabouts. That same territory, that central plateau, is occupied by a culture that has been identified by and is known to archaeologists as the Gokomer. And the Gokomer people responsible for that culture, were hunters and pastoralists, uh, which is to say that they kept animals, goats, cattle, they, they, they kept animals. These Gokomer were the ancestors of the Mashona. They're in an unbroken line of descent, and the Gokomer were quite something. By around 500 AD, by around the middle of the first millennium AD, so you know, to give you a handhold in time, let's say the, the Roman Empire in, in Europe has just imploded. It's around that time, it's in the, those, around the, the, the decades and centuries around that, the collapse of the Roman Empire. By that point, the, the Mashona, or the descendants of the Gokomir, whatever you want to call them, had trading links all across, you know, stepping stones through the peoples of, of eastern Africa all the way to the coast and beyond by that point, as the second half of the first millennium developed there were Muslim civilizations in contact with the eastern seaboard of Africa and the people were adopting Islamic ways as the second half of the first millennium AD progressed and so there was a unifying language all the way from the, the central plateau out to the eastern seaboard. And it was Swahili, which you know, most people will have heard of Swahili. 
which is a very uh, a very useful language in Africa. Many people speak Swahili, and it's actually a word of Arabic origin. The word comes out of the Arabian Peninsula, and it means Swahili means of the coast. Okay, so the people of the Central Plateau they're connected by a spider's web of connections all the way across all the way to the Horn of Africa, and from the Horn of Africa onwards by ship to the Bay of Bengal and the Arabian Peninsula. It's quite extraordinary, all of this in the second half of the first millennium AD. By 800 AD, by now let's call these people the Shona, and they are the direct descendants of the Gokomir, and they're trading primarily in gold and copper and elephant ivory. Okay, that's what they have to offer, and they're bringing in other things that they desire via exchange. So it's quite sophisticated then. It's extremely yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a whole world. You know, they're they're um, they're, uh, they're they're global capitalists. <laughs> well, they're not. They're not that silly. But you know what I mean. They're 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 plugged into international trade networks. You know, it's it's modern in every way apart from the the machinery that they're using to get the job done. You know, they're using sailing ships and they're they're transporting stuff over land by beasts of burden and whatever. But the, the principle remains the same. Now, what's really crucial in terms of the the love letter and a, and a crucial moment in history is that the Gokomir and then the Shona, they had noticed over a long period of time, they had become aware of the fact that the exposed granite of the bedrock of the central plateau would crack. Long fissures opened up in it on account of the extreme heat that beat down on it during the day and then the intense cold, because in some levels they're at high altitude, comparatively speaking, so it's very cold at night. So there's, you've got the rock being heated during the day, and then it very rapidly cools during the night, and it cracks. And the Gokomir, the Shona, had noticed this, and they had seen that they could exploit it as building material. Where there were fissures, they began a practice of setting fires into these cracks, to to accelerate the process and what happened was they could split off on an industrial level great blocks of granite and they could then work them they had iron tools by this point they had all the chisels and hammers and all the rest of it to work the the granite into regular blocks and it was fantastic building material right they've got enormous lego blocks that they can build with and by the dawn of the 11th century you know let's say the 1000s AD they're already at work some of the people there are at work on what would develop during the course of the centuries to come into the structure or the settlement known to the world as Great Zimbabwe. Great Zimbabwe is the greatest, most sophisticated complex of stone buildings south of the Sahara Desert. And work was underway a thousand years ago. So think about that. What was happening in Europe at that time? Well, you know the the ten hundreds. Oh, you've got all the you've got all the stramash that we've been talking about in the love letter to the world going on. You've got all the, you know, you've got all the upheavals that you've got the rivalry between church and state. You know, in eight hundred AD, Charlemagne is, was crowned as emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. By a thousand AD, the Muslim caliphates are well established. Britain is still a backwater. It has gone through that period of the Romans leaving, uh, the Anglo-Saxons coming in, then contact in the eighth century with Vikings. You know, all of all of that has been going on while all of that has been happening in you know, in, in southern Africa. But th- those two worlds, to all intents and purposes, know nothing of one another. 
uh, or if there have been any connections that are, that are of such a frail and uh, ephemeral sort that, that none of it is recorded by in any form that's come down to us in, in modern history. Because the, the Africans are trading in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's always important to know, we're, we're very Eurocentric here, of course we are, and it's important to know that the other parts of the world were getting along with one another quite happily, trading, swapping ideas, languages, alphabets, traditions, cultures, religions, all of it was going on without us being involved or being on the receiving end of any of it. Our contribution to the world comes, you know, comes later in the day. So, in Great, Zimb- Great Zimbabwe at its height was populated by perhaps 20,000 people. So, by any standards of the day, it ranks as a city. It's, it's in three complexes. There's a hill. The summit of the highest hill in the area uh, is, is developed with dry stone structures. That's called, or known to archaeologists, as the hill complex. Within reach of it, but on, on lower ground, is an, in, is an enormous stone-built circular enclosure. And it's this that those who have heard of and seen images of or have visited Great Zimbabwe, this is what you're thinking about. It's a, a huge, roughly circular wall. Work on this enclosure may have begun around 1200 AD. So, about 15 years before Magna Carta was sealed by King John. Across the interior, the diameter of it is about 800 feet, so it's big. The wall is many, many feet thick. 10 feet thick at the base, let's say, and 30 feet high. It's an enormous structure. Within the, that, that outer wall, there's an inner wall. Okay, again, circular. And in the, in the space between the two walls, there's a massive tower, 30-odd feet high, that tapers to the top. And the, the interpretation of that is that it would have looked like, although it's unlikely that it functioned as, a, an enormous grain store but it has the architectural appearance of a grain store. The whole thing is dry stone. They're not using mortar. They're not sticking the bricks together. And, and this is clever and takes considerable skill. You know, if you're going to build at height, you've got to know what you're doing because the, the integrity of the structure is all about the blocks fitting together perfectly. So this is, this is sophisticated engineering work. The third part of Great Zimbabwe, so you've got the hill complex, you've got this huge circular enclosure, and then there's also what was known as the, well, what's known to archaeologists as the valley complex. And this is composed primarily of many, many, many mud brick buildings. These aren't dry stone. You know, you've got some sort of production line going where people are getting clay mud, shaping it into blocks, drying it in the sun, and then building with that. And the valley complex was probably where most of the people lived. Whatever was going on in the in the great circular uh, enclosure and in, in the hill complex, you know, may have been more ceremonial, may have been more in the way of a kind of a royal palace or some place where the wealth of the community was was collectively stored. But most people lived in the valley complex in such simpler structures. Most important to know about Great Zimbabwe in its entirety is that they were trading across vast distances, excavated from within Great Zimbabwe. As pottery and ceramics from China and from Persia and there's China plates in Great Zimbabwe in the 13th century there are silver coins from Arabia the same coins, the same currency that the Vikings so coveted in their own time 
So the high point of the whole affair was probably between the 13th and the 15th centuries, so between the 12 and the 1400s. Whoever they were, let's call them Shona, they controlled trade up and down. I mean, from their place in the central plateau, they were in control of trade up and down Africa's east coast. It's quite quite an extraordinary achievement. Just as extraordinary in a sense is the fact that the place was abandoned completely during the later 15th century and the early 16th century for reasons, this happens over and over again. It happened with early civilizations. The Harappan culture in India comes and goes, you know, hits its high point and then, you know, it falls away. Something similar happens at Great Zimbabwe. It develops, it reaches a high point and then for reasons unknown to modern historians, it falls away. And, and the usual suspects are invoked to explain it. Population pressure, where there are too many people. Climate change, you know, what had been fertile, did it, did it cease to be as productive? Pressure on available resources, war, who knows? The thing to note, though, is it's yet another example of, of a, of a civilisation that comes out of nowhere, rises like a puffball of, you know, a fungal puffball in the night, and then just as quickly, really, its time has passed you got great civilizations that come in the old world of Mesopotamia, and they rise and they fall. You've got the Roman Empire in Europe, the Mediterranean, that rises, dominates the, the European continent, and then goes. Same thing happens in Africa. Same thing happens at Great Zimbabwe. All of these places are warnings. They are all predictions of what inevitably happens to civilizations. We're in a civilization that seems to be on the downslope at the moment. The same things probably are happening, which is, never mind, never mind population pressure or, or climate change, it's loss of confidence. The invisible human glue, the self-confidence, the shared ideal of the people living there, it just it evaporates like mist. It just goes away. And that is the warning. We see it happening all over the world and it happened at Great Zimbabwe. So by the, by the early part of the 16th century, it's, there's nobody there. But the buildings are still there because they've been so well built. And once modern Europeans encountered Great Zimbabwe, they liked calling it a lost city, you know, as though as though they had found it, you know, as though it was just to Europeans to understand what it was. But because the people living around it, they knew what it was for the longest time. A bit like people living around Stonehenge knew about Stonehenge. You know, it, it didn't take archaeologists in the in the the 18th and 19th centuries to tell them it was there. They knew it was there. They just didn't care about it anymore because times had moved on. So a lost city, it was not. An overlooked city, a redundant city, it might have been, but it wasn't lost. Zimbabwe, name of the country, obviously, now, but Zimbabwe, it's difficult to get the etymology of that sorted out. It's Bantu. It comes out of the Bantu family of languages. It may mean stone houses. It, It may be a reference to the most obvious feature of the place. The first European to run across it in its ruined state was a Portuguese, an explorer, Captain Vincent Pegado, and he he described the ruins in his diary in 1531. 1531, he said, among the gold mines of the inland plains between the Limpopo and Zambezi rivers, there is a fortress built of stones of marvellous size, and there appears to be no mortar joining them. This edifice is almost surrounded by hills upon which are others resembling it in the fashioning of stone and the absence of mortar, and one of them is a tower of more than twelve fathoms high. The natives of the country call these edifices Simbawe. Now, Vicente 
spells that S-Y-M-B-A-O-E, Zimbabwe, because he's just writing down the word that he hears, but it's Zimbabwe. The natives of the country call these edifices Zimbabwe, which, according to their language, signifies court. So, a bit like a royal court, not the crown court, but the, the place of a king, the stamping ground of a monarch. So, Zimbabwe probably means more than one thing at the same time. It might be descriptive of the fact that it's a great stone structure, but it may also at the same time have connotations of court. It's then overlooked by the European world for the longest time again, and after Pegado, it wasn't until a German-American hunter called Adam Rendier stumbled across it. And now a bit of a momentum picks up. Adam Rendier goes back to the world, his own world, and... You know, amongst other things, reports what he has seen on the Central Plateau. And word reaches Cecil Rhodes. Now, Cecil Rhodes was a, a British... What was he? He was everything. He was, an, he was an entrepreneur. He dabbled in politics. He was a kingmaker uh, amongst, you know, the political parties of the time. You know, he was a mover and a shaker. And he had been installed in Southern Africa. And, and by the time word of Great Zimbabwe reaches him, he's plotting to stake the territory that eventually becomes Rhodesia. He named it after himself. And in the modern world, obviously, Rhodesia is Zimbabwe again. In the 19th century, Britain, amongst other European countries, had identified Southern Africa in particular as a gold mine, literally and metaphorically. They knew there was gold there, there were diamonds there, there was copper there, there was fertile land there, it had everything. And the, the, the British were right at the forefront of trying to get it, get the whole place for themselves. And Cecil Rhodes was there doing that, collectivising the place on, on Britain's behalf. And, you know, Britain would be at that throughout the 19th century. And when word of this city reached Cecil Rhodes, he was alarmed. Because the last thing Cecil Rhodes wanted was any suggestion that there was already a civilization, or there had ever been a civilization there. They were all in the business of trying to portray Africa as virgin territory, you know, populated by savages who absolutely needed European input to sort them out. So the last thing they needed was any suggestion that there was some kind of sophisticated population ever. They didn't want it. So Rhodes dispatches an archaeologist called James Theodore Bent, who's pretty much... He's, he's number one, he's got to go and have a look at it and see what it exactly is, but his job is to establish, for God's sake, make sure it hasn't been built by Africans. Because that, we just don't want that. So, James Theodore Bent went to Great Zimbabwe, checked out the place, and on the basis of a single wooden lintel, there was a single wooden lintel across one doorway, he made the connection from that to the Phoenicians who built Solomon's first temple. Now, we've We've in, this, in the love letter to the world, we've considered the Phoenicians, the great mariners, explorers and, and traders of the ancient world who came out of the eastern Mediterranean and went all over. They came to Britain for tin in Cornwall. And the, the story has it, that, and the Bible has it, that the Phoenicians were summoned by King Solomon, the Hebrew king, to build the first temple for him. And they built it of cedar wood. So that tenuous connection, this lintel of wood, enabled James Theodore Bent to claim in the end that Great Zimbabwe was a deliberate copy of the palace of the biblical Queen of Sheba. And that it had been built not by black Africans, but by either wandering Jews, wandering Hebrews, 
Phoenicians or people from the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, anybody but black people was James Theodore Bent's paid-for conclusion about Great Zimbabwe. So, you know, it was all very much a product of its time. All because Rhodes and Britain wanted all the gold, all the copper, you know, all the great mineral wealth of Africa. They had to persuade themselves and everybody else that there was nobody in Southern Africa worth bothering about. And so so not only did the did that European world find an excuse to take away the wealth of Southern Africa in the form of all the gold and all the rest, they also denied the people for the longest time even the knowledge that their ancestors there had been the Gokomer, the Shona, who had been capable of building something as phenomenally significant as Great Zimbabwe. Glittering land, rich, powerful and prosperous. From its heights, Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, was on a slow freefall to oblivion. The world map is being redrawn yet again. A decisive military victory at Manzikert and a new force, the Seljuk Turks, is on the rise and the battle lines that would last centuries are being drawn. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.